Welcome to the inaugural FPA podcast. I'm Dante Degori, Chief Executive of the Financial Planning Association of Australia. We are super excited to bring you this new podcast series and to provide a forum for financial planning professionals to delve deeper into the important issue facing our profession and to engage with you, our experts, on the topics that matter. We hope to provide a platform for engaging discussions that will help inform you, educate you, and illuminate the pathway forward for our profession as we navigate this period of transformation together. To start off the podcast, our first episode, I'm joined by our Head of Policy Innovation and Strategy, Mr. Ben Martian. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Dante. It's nice to join you on our inaugural podcast. Well, yes. I mean, you're a bit of a podcast connoisseur. You listen to many podcasts, you know what works. So hopefully we'll get the ingredients right for this one. And we hope that will be informative and engaging for our members and no doubt let them in, in in terms of the background, what's happening behind the scenes at the FPA. And so I suppose there's a lot of things going on at the moment. Um, no. I was going to ask you, you're constantly on FPA community, which yeah. is the channel for FPA members to engage and voice topics that they want to discuss. Well, what's the buzz at the moment? There's a couple of topics that are keeping everybody excited on community at the moment. And I have to say, I mean, it's great to have a forum and a, a discussion and somewhere that we can we can engage with members the way we have been in community. We've spent years, and I think this podcast is another way, you know, that we're looking to do that. We've spent years just sending out FPA Todays and, and FPA Expresses and hoping that members will get back to us and engage with us and communicate with us. But we've now got this great forum that that we're getting some good discussions. Um, you know, the hot topics at the moment are, are AFCA. Uh, there's a review going on to AFCA and there's a lot of members that are helping us shape our submission in terms of that review to AFCA based on their experiences. The other big topic at the moment is the ASIC industry levy. We, you know, we still haven't seen the invoices for, but but we've got plenty of information to tell us that the fees have gone up and have doubled just in the in the last 12 months, if not a bit more. So we're having some great engagement with members about the interactions they're having with their local members of parliament, discussions they're having, the fact that their local members of parliament are actually listening to them. So mm. there's a couple of, couple of good topics there. And then I think the other one, the other one's related to the Royal Commission, which you mentioned, which is this whole change to biannual opt-in renewals changing to annual and the new requirements around fee disclosure statements. So it's another big, interesting topic and conversation going on. Yeah, and you know, unlike some of the other things happening, this stuff has been legislated, as you said, and they, they, they do yeah. start. And I suppose if there is something, if you're going to take something out of today's podcast that you perhaps haven't been aware of, this piece of legislation is going to be in play. That's not a if it is, and that kicks off from 1 July. Is there anything you wanted to share in terms of maybe some top things, uh, top one, two things that the uh, members should be aware of as part of this new legislation? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. The first is there's a lot of confusion around it. So the, the main thing to take away is that if you're doing, you've, you've now kind of got two choices going forwards. You can do an ongoing fee agreement with your client, which is basically the same as what we've got at the moment, that your, your service and the fees are an ongoing arrangement. The client opts into those now on an annual basis rather than a biannual basis. Or you can do a version of a fixed term or fixed engagement agreement with your client. So the most common one there is that, that they'll do an annual fee agreement where the client will pay fees for a 12-month period and then that agreement ceases. If the client wants to keep going with an ongoing relationship with you, you would enter into a whole new service and fee agreement with them after 12 months. So there's no actual changes if you're doing the latter. 
So if you've got a fixed term, fixed service agreement with your client, that stays the same as what it is at the moment. If you're doing ongoing fee arrangements, though, that's where the big changes are coming in. So as I said, we're going from having to do renewal notices every two years to having to do them every year. And there's some of our members who are doing them every three years as part of the professional ongoing fee code. That's something else that, that will be removed out of this. The other big change in this, though, is that at the moment, fee disclosure statements have only been what are the fees the client has paid over the last 12 months. Part of the new framework will be required to provide clients with an estimate of fees that they'll pay over the next 12 months as part of the renewal notice. So, you know, those are the two big ticket items in relation to to ongoing fees going forwards. But I mean, there's a lot of confusion. And what I am in the process of doing is creating a how to comply piece of guidance for members, which we'll, we'll hopefully have out in the next couple of weeks or, or not too long after that on how members have to adjust their current fee arrangements to comply with the new laws. Yeah, excellent. And are yeah, you, I mean, are it does you get hearing, a bit confusing. Yeah, so, I mean, this, are you having conversations with, with licensees and members about that one? Or? Look, it's, it's coming up. I think the main discussions have been <laughs> no one really wants it to happen. And I think it's because there's also been this fact that the FDS is not going away when you go to an annual arrangement. And I think, you know, we, we argue strongly about the fact that we uh, we believe that the opportunity to avoid some duplication and or, and or reduce some unnecessary yeah. administration would have been beneficial, but being a Royal Commission recommendation and, you know, I think the government just wasn't prepared to go there, which is a real disappointment. But, you know, I think there's opportunity for people to, to, to look at this and see how they should structure their arrangements with their clients going forward uh, that matches yeah. their needs and, and their clients' needs. I mean, we're still um, having those conversations with, with mm. ASIC around the problems with fee disclosure statements and the fact that what the client pays is not necessarily the amount that you receive. Yeah. The, the timing of when the client pays it is not the same as when you receive it and the difficulties in reporting that as required under the fee disclosure <laughs> statement obligations today. Then there's this whole issue is, you know, if you're charging an asset-based fee, how do you estimate the fees for the next financial year? Or the next 12 months, I should say. And how's that going to be dealt with? Yeah, what, talking about asset-based fees and uh, what about um, what the listeners and members may not be aware of was that uh, during this whole process of passing the bill, in particular, the legislation that related to the declaration of non-independence, which is part of the Royal Commission, there was a, a proposal that was um, lobbied for to effectively ensure that or not to effectively change the definition of independent in the Corporations Act. Yeah. And, uh, and by that change, that included that asset-based fees would mean you're ineligible to to call yourself independent it didn't didn't proceed but that was a very interesting 24 hours when that was put on the table so i mean one of the things i wanted to talk about was is you know our relationship with with politicians and and regulators and things and that was that was a really interesting day watching your whatsapp going being every couple of minutes from from messages, I mean, without without breaking confidence with yeah. our, our contacts and 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 the people we were talking to, but can you just let members know a little bit about what that day was like? Considering the the amendment, um, which mm. so to put in a context, this amendment would have meant that rather than having 130 advisors meet the independent definition, it would probably drop it by half and make it even more difficult to become mm. independent, which is already. A problem in itself. So, considering the impact, which would have been negligible, 
there was a lot of fury and, and running around and, you know, what's the word I'm looking for here? Chaos around uh, Parliament that day. And, uh, yeah, it was 24 hours of nonstop you know, messaging and, and discussion about uh, will it or won't it and, uh, and trying to get certain parties to, you know, whether they would support or not support. It was just crazy. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, again, for something, in, in my opinion, something you know, of, of really little impact, significant in terms of its, 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 its the principle it sets. But in the context of the that impact. whole bill. Oh, in the context exactly. of that whole bill, it was just a kind of little thing. But, but yeah, I mean, it, uh, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, I oh, think for I, me, the watching politicians asking us to to engage with crossbenchers and oppositions and have conversations with them about what this means and, and how it would work and what the impact was to the overall bill was, yeah, um, yeah. You know, and, <laughs> it was chaos, right. as you said. It, it was, and yeah, it's a, it gives you a bit of insight as to which mm. parties don't talk to which parties and the reliance yeah. of third parties to almost you know mediate that approach. So it was quite interesting, but yeah, that happens from time to time, but yeah, it, it does show you the, it, it does present a, a picture of, I suppose, the political landscape in terms of who are more in a uh, more engaged and more in a what I suppose so-called relationship or or, mm. or some form of relationship versus those that aren't. So it makes it quite interesting for the government's bigger uh, policy agenda. So let's move on to you know I'm talking about sort of government. I mean, you talked about the ASIC levy. I think that's mm. quite big, and you know the FPA has been quite vocal in our disappointment and opposition to the increase what what a members been saying about it from your perspective what are you uh, what are you hearing from from members and licensees about the impact of this and you know do we have support across the profession for what's happening in this space yeah so i think the problem is is that we've had issues with the asic funding model since since it was first proposed back in back in around 2015 we had concern that particularly for smaller licensees, there was an unfair burden on them covering the cost of regulating, monitoring, supervising that ASIC did against large large institutions. And that's not to say that a user pay model is wrong. We don't, we think it is right for, for users of a, of a regulator to, to be paying for them, but the model that we came up with had, had problems with it. And it's taken a couple of years for our concerns to play out although this is only the third year of levies and, and we've seen 160% increase in the levy over that, that period of time. So I think members are concerned the, the quantum itself is not the issue to it's roughly $2,500 per advisor per planner this year. That in itself is not the problem, but it, it's this constant increase, the lack of transparency about how we get to that, that cost base and how, how that works. And then we've got the concern that the number of financial planners on the yeah. on the financial advisor register is constantly decreasing at the moment. So more and more of that increased cost burden is coming coming to individual financial planners. And when does it stop? What what's going into it? I've got serious concerns that there are aspects of the fee that that probably shouldn't be apportioned to financial advice are being apportioned to financial advice and and is that fair? Well, let, let's talk about that, Ben. I think let's yeah. break it up from because I mean it is a, it's very easy to look at it just purely from the high, the 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 ultimate yeah. number. But I think the opportunity to detail a little bit about how the ASIC levy works, yeah, uh, what's made up of the ASIC levy, and you know what 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 elements contribute to 
uh, ASIC's uh, decision to increase. So what things are factored into that? How does that work? You know, over what period of time and what things are not, you know, how does it work with in terms of cost recovery and fines and other things that the, that the ASIC may actually yeah. be in receipt of? So just give a bit maybe about how the levy actually works mechanically. So, I mean, it's big and complicated, hmm. I mean, to be honest, but ultimately the government says that ASIC can spend $250 million, $270 million a year. That's its, that's its budget for the year. So ASIC will then take that, take that budget and it will, it will budget it out and plan for projects and, and do monitoring and supervision of different, different sectors of the financial services industry more broadly. So in, in terms of financial advice, they will do investigations, they do thematic reviews, so things like the life insurance review, which is going on at the moment, this, this project around affordable advice that they're doing. They have meetings with, with industry, they will go to different licensees and they will act actively review bits of advice or bits of their compliance framework or risk frameworks. Um, so all of that is is the normal activity of ASIC. The bit that's, that's kind of gotten a, a way out of control for this year is that one of the other aspects that also gets thrown into the levy is, is court costs. So if ASIC starts to take licensees to court, then that fee comes back to the pool of whichever industry mm. is, being, is being taken to court. So for example, we've had court cases. We just had a Dover was recently was recently in court and there was there was a, a finding against them. There's a number of other licensees that have had had cases go on and, and ASIC will assign the costs of those cases based on which area of financial services they relate to. So what we've unfortunately seen is that the the cost of monitoring and supervising financial advice has gone up anyway because we've had a lot of remediation programs. We've had a lot of active monitoring and supervising that ASIC's been doing in licensees, but then we've had a significant number of court cases that have, have hit over the last financial year and those costs are being apportioned to us this year. So 40 to 50% of the levy for this year is not ASIC monitoring and supervision action. It is, it is court costs that have been assigned to the financial mm. advice bucket. And and my issue and, and our issue, I guess, mm. with that is that some of them aren't actually financial advice licensees. So well, let's look at the BT yeah. case as an example yeah. so there's two questions here two issues for me one is whether this matter should be funded from the advisor bucket versus mm. the superannuation bucket that's the first question yeah but even if they say the advisor bucket bt westpac don't actually have any advisors anymore no. so uh, therefore the cost the the, the, the levy <clears throat> that's been charged to fund or to recoup the cost of this activity yeah is completely being being um, uh, burdened upon the rest of the the advisor market, um, yeah, and right. BT and Westpac are not paying a cent for it. So I, I just no. think it's, you know, so, so the fairness and equity of the way the model works, yeah, you know, is a real problem. So there's a first question of which bucket it should go in, and there's a massive question mark from our perspective, as you said. But the second one is that in that particular scenario, surely, you know, ASIC must look at that and say, well, wait a minute, BT, you know, are, are they responsible for this action? Yet we're we're not we're not going to levy the cost that that was associated with it on any, on them at all. I just think no, that's right. Completely outrageous. We do. We we think that's outrageous. And and I should say, I mean, I mean, the unfortunate thing in all this is that well, I mean, it's not unfortunate, but the, I mean, the reality is ASIC has won that case. BT's been ordered to pay costs. That will take time, but those costs will come back 
and it'd be a credit against the financial advice bucket at some point in the future. But, you know, there's, there's court cases and arguments that are going to go, and, go on. And there's a little that. bit of, a little bit uncertainty about this, isn't it? I know that mm. we, I think we've, you know, we, we actually have a meeting with ASIC with, with their uh, sort of finance team to, we do. to really get to the bottom of this. But one of the uncertainties was whether or not those costs and fines did go back into the pool, as you say, as a credit, or, or do they go into consolidated revenue? And yeah, I think my understanding now is costs, yes, fines, no. That's right, yeah. So mm-hmm. so fines and penalties go into consolidated revenue, and so that, that goes for the government to, to spend. Any uh, court-ordered costs, those come back into into the pool. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, those, those fines and things that, organizations have been found to do the wrong things they get fined they get penalized that doesn't come back into helping fund this portion of the bucket despite the fact that we're paid to support ASIC running the case just before we move on you did ask okay. about the working with the rest of the industry and, and oh, so yes. you know this is a good example of us working with the accounting bodies so CPA CANS IPA self-managed super fund association and jointly working together to advocate for the ASIC industry levy model to be reviewed by Treasury and all working together, putting out joint press releases. So um, I just want to make the point that we, we, you know, that there's, there's a suggestion that we're all, we don't work together. We don't um, all pull in the same direction. We're having different conversations with stakeholders. Um, The reality is we generally work very closely with other associations and we have a lot of conversations with them and, and we advocate in a more or less single voice. There might be multiple voices saying the same thing, but we're all saying the same thing. So, you know, I've seen AFA today come out and, and ask for the same things we've been asking for. Yeah. I've seen FSC come out and ask for the same things we've been asking for. We've been working with these these other um, accounting bodies, specifically around this industry funding model. But that's just one example of, of multiple multiple issues that we work together on. Yeah, that's right. There's a, there's a lot of ongoing collaboration um, yeah. across the body, so uh, which is great. Um, I wanted to turn the attention to a bit more something a bit more topical, and uh, that's been in the press lately, and that's uh, Melissa Caddick. And the reason I want to raise it is because we've had obviously a lot of a lot of interest from members about how this matter has been reported in the press, and you know what journalists, how journalists have yeah. described her, and uh, in the press, and uh, we've had a lot of members. <laughs> comment on that and provide, you know, copies of particular articles, et cetera. Just to let the members know, you know, what, what, what have we been doing and how have we been tackling this and what members can do if they find any articles in their local press coverage that may be misrepresenting her? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we were on top of this in, I think it was November or, or October when, when all of this kicked off. And they were they were referring to Melissa Caddick as a financial planner a lot at that time. We proactively worked with our media relation team on providing a fact sheet for journalists about what a financial planner is and what a financial planner isn't. And what you'll find is that there are occasional mentions now that she was a, a former financial planner or a fraudulent mm. financial planner or something. But But the reality is most articles are referring to her as a business person or a con person or somebody. She wasn't really a business person either, was she? Well, no, she wasn't. I mean, you're not a business person if you're doing things fraudulently. So 
I think the, the point is we've actually, there are the odd articles that are, are still coming through, but given the quantum mm. of coverage, virtually none of them are mentioned. Oh, it's been huge. She's a financial yeah. planner, and that's because of the work that, that we and our media team have done on educating and informing journalists. So, in fact, if members are seeing uh, articles come through that mention financial planning incorrectly, somebody who's not a financial planner being a financial planner or a financial advisor, let us know because we've got this great fact sheet. We've got this great... Mm reach out campaign that we're doing with journalists to try and educate them. And and that's actually led to a lot of beneficial press coverage and a lot of beneficial articles of talking about how to find a qualified, professional, ethical financial planner and and being able to point them to FPA members. So, you know, there's a positive that's come out of this as well. Yeah, that's right. And uh, for any of you listening, if you weren't aware, again, you know, we have we have um, a, a statement that you can use. And uh, please let us know. Our PR agency has been on top of this and been proactively talking to the press since November when this first matter sort of came yeah. to air when she disappeared. So, you know, we haven't just started doing this with recent events. This has been uh, something that we've been aware of and uh, mm. and following and correcting journos uh, since November. So we've got roadshows coming up and, and it would be great to see you all in person. And we're kicking off with regional Australia to start with, but we'll be making our way across the country over the coming months. So I hope to yep. see you all soon. And so there's some exciting things coming. A lot of things that I think will be of great use and benefit and support for, for our members and probably the broader financial planning community. So thank you, Ben, for your time today. And no doubt we'll, My pleasure. there are plenty of topics that we will sink our teeth in over the coming podcast episodes. And if there are any suggestions or topics or ideas from the audience, please let us know. But until then, uh, thank you for your company. And I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Money and Life podcast for FPA professionals. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Thanks, Dante. Bye, everyone.